0: Hey, this is The Moment. I'm Brian Koppelman. Thanks for listening. This is a highly requested, much requested, question and answer, ask me anything episode with Anna Koppelman. Hello. Who has collected the questions you've sent in. We're back. We are. We're back and we are ready to answer. Anna, how's your week been?
1: My week's been good. How's your week been?
0: You know, it's been a pretty good week because I got to hang out with you and your brother this week a bunch and mom, and then also had some friends over and the Billion Seasons going incredibly well. Damien was in this week playing Axe and you know, just getting to write for all these people. And I'm really trying to appreciate it and notice mm-hmm. it and be present on set and really feel it when I'm in the editing room. And um, not look ahead Or like look behind But actually just like Really be in In it In the moment Oh gosh Horrible (laughs) How's your stand up comedy been this week?
1: It's been good No I was gonna say I think Sam's a little jealous Of my place as the Ask Me Anything co-host
0: Did he say anything?
1: Well he asked to hang out And I was like I can't Because I'm doing another Ask Me Anything with dad And he was like Didn't you just do one?
0: Well I mean didn't you? But this is the thing you, I said sort... he could
1: join But I think he's intimidated
0: I mean he went off And left for college For four years leaving Before you here.
1: me Leaving me here To And we you yeah, know, Then you
0: went to college But we already, already had We had already had
1: those four years Our
0: routines Now you're back from college And Listen This how, is what we do How has stand-up comedy Been going this week In the city
1: It's been good It's been fun
0: How many Open mics Or Shows Have you Did you do this week Would you say
1: uh, Like nine
0: and have you been averaging like nine or ten per week?
1: Yeah, probably. For how long? Since like mid-December, January.
0: That's really incredible.
1: Yeah, it's fun.
0: I'm very proud of you. Thanks, Dad. And uh, your jokes are great, the ones, that I can, the ones that I can hear, but I'm also fine to just not hear them and let you just do your thing. But it's great hearing all the feedback. Like I feel like you
1: hear a lot of it through Sam. Like Sam will hear them and then he'll, tell, he'll, he'll paraphrase them to you. And then you'll say to me, I heard that joke was good through Sam.
0: Yeah. But also then sometimes you will tell me certain a premise or an idea. Yeah, that's true. Yeah. And they're very funny.
1: And you know what? I've become a mini you because so many people have told me that they've read the artist's way because of me this week. True. Yeah. I had two friends say that they read the artist's way and have been doing morning pages because of me.
0: And yeah, someone was over here last night who we were talking.
1: Well, that's one of the people I'm talking
0: about. No, but someone else we were talking about. And then a third person said it. Yes. Oh, wow. Julia Cameron's The Artist's Way. Go, go listen to my episodes with Julia. And um, Anna came and heard one of them and I think asked one question no, to I Julia. No, I did
1: I think I just sat to the side.
0: And then at the end, you said hi, maybe?
1: Yeah. But I don't know if that made it to the episode.
0: All right. Let's get into this Ask Me Anything episode of the podcast.
1: Okay. So this is the one you wanted to start with. Hey there, I've just got a question for the podcast. Usually I write about what interests me. I try not to make stuff based on what's trending or the drama that's going on in the industry or the world. But sometimes I still feel the pressure to go about it that way. It works. And talking about other things sometimes feels completely tone deaf. But at the same time, maybe I need to lean into it more and maybe I'm just hiding from something that scares me. Do you ever feel this pressure and what are your thoughts? Thanks,
0: Marley. That's the great Marley Sprague who's an incredible poker player and has been making content for years online about uh, she started doing it when she was out in Vegas. Uh, She may have been doing it before that. She had a whole different career um, and then went out to Vegas and started doing content on what it was like to try to become a poker pro. And she's really smart and, and funny. And Marley I can tell you that I don't ever think about what's going to play in the current market or, like, oh, everybody's doing a certain thing, so I better comment on it. You know, everybody's talking, let's say, about the Robbie cheating scandal in your world of poker. I better produce something about that and I'm always interested in what creators in any way just actually have on their mind, because I think that leads them to producing the most interesting stuff and to try to bandwagon. Like there are people who that's what they do. And maybe they just like being part of the, like jumping on the zeitgeist. But I think that anything I've ever done with Dave that's resonated was like either ahead of it or just besides the point of what, was going on. And sometimes that can like harm commercial prospects, I guess. And that can haunt you. I mean, basically, if you're part of starting a trend, that means you might be too early. But on the other hand, if you notice something as an artist, as a creator, as a thinker or a writer, I think the obligation is to create in that place
1: I have a question, though. How much of this perspective do you think is because what you do takes a, f- a while to come out? So, like, if you were to be just responding to what's happening today, it wouldn't be relevance expense from now, opposed to, like, a content creator who every day is making something to go out that day?
0: Well, that's fair. That's a totally a fair question. You know, Sam Morel's great. The great comedian yeah. Sam is great at immediately taking what's going on and then doing something that night about it. This like, throw a topic at me and people throw what's going on in the world. But it seems to me like he loves the challenge of having to think that fast and come up with something that's current. And that's awesome. But I, I also think like, if I can mention a creator who means a lot to you, like I think that tinks was not cap like capturing what was going on. Well, in the beginning when she was doing like rich mom, Aspen or whatever.
1: Yeah, but then part of why I think people liked watching her in the pandemic is she was reporting live every day what was happening in her life.
0: In her life, right? Totally Which is
1: different than from well, the
0: world. Marley oh. reporting about yeah. what's going on in Marley's life as she's losing in a poker tournament is great, but to then or winning, I don't know why I'm assuming you're losing, Marley. But um,
1: you're making a lot of assumptions. I am. Yeah. Uh,
0: but I would say reporting on what's going on in your, in your life, or, or having a take on that, is great. And 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 or if your natural bent is to talk about. You're really interested in the current thing, then that's awesome. Right. But I don't think that you should worry, oh everyone's getting ahead of me because they have a take. Right. Like if you don't naturally just have a take on what's going on that means something to you, I think it's really hard for me to produce work about that. So I would say I would not stress about that particular thing. There's a related question. Um Another uh, creator who I think is absolutely just terrifically funny and smart, Anna, is Connor. Yes, yes. Uh, Bergerson, who's got these great characters. And he sent me a voicemail question. I think I'm just going to play it on here. Is that cool with you, Anna? Mm-hmm. And then we'll go to the next because we can both, I think, speak to this and answer it together. So I'm going to play Connor's question. He's hilarious. Follow him. His his uh, character, who just one ups everybody that he interacts with, is super super funny.
2: Hey Brian, uh, a question for your Ask Me Anything episode. Uh, a question about uh, creative ideas and uh, and and bringing them to fruition. Um, have you ever had, or do you still have a a way of gauging whether a creative uh, idea or venture or project is going to be good and you know be uh, appeal to the masses and by all accounts be successful have you ever had a way of gauging that prior to putting it out into the world uh, have you ever had an external or, or internal gauge whatever it may be um or has every single time every single project every single uh venture whatever it is has it always been i'm taking this idea to completion the script whatever it is and i'm putting it out into the world and god fucking knows what's going to come of it so uh thanks very much brian appreciate it
0: connor you asked a couple questions in in one because how do you know it's good versus appeal to the masses i think those are different ideas
1: yes probably
0: because plenty of things are really good and they don't appeal to the masses i think that one way is does it keep your interest as a creator Like if you get an idea and then it stays in your head for a few days. And then as you start making a thing, you're getting more ideas or more. It's more interesting or it's exciting. You get that adrenaline flowing and you don't Mm -hmm. feel like you're faking the funk. Then I think it has a chance to, that it might be good. And again, this is personal thing, but I never have any idea what's going to appeal. Even I'd say now where David and I, there are a group of people it could be slightly bigger version or a slightly smaller version. There are a group of people who are on our wavelength and like our voice and what we do. And will be there in some way to like engage with our material. But I never have any idea if it's going to go beyond that to sort of like a big audience Mm -hmm. that's bigger than sort of like the people who've been along for the ride for a long time now. I don't know. And I don't, I don't, I never thought about it. I mean, Even when, you know, like our movie Solitary Man, which was so well-reviewed and like such a, a personal project and like a dream in many ways, we knew we were working on something because of the actors we were working with and the crew. Like we knew we were, we were working on something that could be good and had no idea whether it would appeal. And, you know, it wasn't a big hit or anything like that. When it played in New York, it was like, I remember being so pleasantly surprised when it had like the highest per screen average in New York the week that it opened and it did incredibly well here and then it didn't play in LA like it was in the wrong theater in LA and it didn't a lot of people didn't go and you start an independent movie like that and we somehow couldn't get it going in in LA in the same way that it got going here I've never thought of that movie as anything but a huge success it was not a commercial success Mm. But it was a success on our terms. And I think that's all you can try to do is make something a, a success on your terms. And also, if you haven't seen Solitaire, man, go rent it. Go see Rent it? What are we in? 1990? Yeah, 1986? Like go to the. Yeah, please go to the video store. Go to Blockbuster and get on the waiting list to rent the VHS <laughs> and make sure you get it in on time and pay your late fees. Sorry. Go find uh, and stream. I can't
1: imagine you and your ADHD ever being able to return any film on time.
0: The worst, per- I will say, like, I must I'm, have had...
1: Like I'm thinking right now about the amount of late fees you must have had on library books, and it's giving me anxiety.
0: Record setting.
1: Yeah, right. I think record record like, setting. Yeah, record setting.
0: No, I mean really, truly <laughs> record setting. Like they would, like I would walk into Blockbuster and the guy would just look at me like, "Dude, what? Where have you been? I've been." Because there was no cell phones either so they couldn't text you.
1: And every day you would mean to do it and you wouldn't and then you'd have it in your stuff. Yeah.
0: Oh, I was see imagine. it. Even, but also
1: you were probably anxious about so many other things so it was like...
0: Even yeah. the beginning of Netflix when they would send uh, DVDs. I would just They would just stay in my backpack <laughs> <for> <laughs> You wouldn't weeks. even watch them? No, like sometimes then I'd watch but then I'd put them in the sleeve back in my backpack to get somewhere. If you don't have ADHD kidneys but if you do, like you could be walked by six mailboxes and not be able to get that thing out of your <laughs> knapsack and so into the mailbox. And it made no sense. And at home, so mad at yourself. And, um, I was terrible about that stuff. I mean, just horrendous. Uh, Yeah, all sorts of ADD therapy and medicine is miraculous. Also, I like that the world just doesn't work that way anymore. Yeah, so you don't
1: really have to return any streams, which is probably. No. Yeah. Well, uh, I didn't even mean to do this, but we could now go into a question about ADHD.
0: Fantastic. Uh,
1: You've spoken eloquently about both your relationship with your father and your experience with ADHD. I had a terrible relationship with my father growing up, in part because of my undiagnosed ADHD. Now I have a six year old who is a lot like I was at that age. Unfortunately, While I have some good examples of what not to do, I don't have many examples of what can work. I would appreciate any thoughts you have on how to support, encourage, and help a child struggling with ADHD. I would love for my son to one day say, my father and I saw each other and liked what we saw. I'd especially love to hear Anna's perspective on this as well. Thank you for your consideration. P.S. I've gotten so much from both of you over the years. If I ever met you in person, I'd probably just say hey and keep it moving to respect your time, privacy, personal space. But please know that I'd want to give you big dabs and a bear hug. I'm sure I'm not the only one.
0: Oh, what's his first name? Jake. Thanks, Jake. Bear hugs and dabs back to you. I'm not sure I would do the dab right. We could dap, I guess, if that's different. High fives, High fives, because I'm an old dude. Yeah, probably.
1: High five.
0: Old straight guy. Hey, let's high five. Boom. The parenting... Okay. First of all, give yourself a break. Breathe. There are challenges with parenting. You're never going to be perfect at it. You're going to have days... Where you're like, I should have had more patience. Forgive yourself for that. For real. That's not like, just be consistent. In in general, the thing, Amy and I are really careful never to act like we know, like we know anything special about parenting or make statements about it because everybody's situation is different and everybody approaches it differently differently some of the things that I think that we were conscious and intentional about had to do with presence and listening and trying really just to be with our kids very consistently, present when we were with them and attentive. And then you just make the best judgments that you can and finding a way to separate your child's achievements and struggles from your own and are aware of not taking the ride with them in that way. And then if also, if you can't like, I stopped coaching Sam's basketball at a certain point at 10 because I was like, when he was 10, cause mm-hmm. I cared, I felt I cared for me, not for him sometimes if he did well mm-hmm. and I noticed it. And so noticing this stuff is important. And then I just like backed off slightly. I still went, I still talked about it, but I wasn't in a coaching situation so that there wasn't any tension around that stuff. Um, For me, and this is not a prescription for me, Adderall helped because I was able to stay present more easily when I was on Adderall at times and wasn't distracted as a parent. But I didn't start taking Adderall until I was 40 or 40. Yeah, something like 40 or really close to that. So Anna was already um, seven years old and Sam was 10 or something like that. But yeah, I think patience, recognizing your kids for who they are, listening to them and spending time doing things with them where you're not just there in a uh, like a role of, Parental coach, uh, schoolwork. I mean, that stuff's all important, but Anna and I used to take walks together every day. Every day. Like, I Mm. would walk Anna to school every morning. And Sam and I did activities together where then I could listen to them. So then you are seeing each other. Um, You're seeing your child, and they see that you're there and with them. But, Boo, do you have a perspective on this? Because you had learning differences in certain ways. Well,
1: I was going to say the last thing you said... You also, I think, went into our spaces where it wasn't like in order to spend time with you, we had to do activities you wanted to do. It was what are you like, you know, you would sit and have tea parties with me instead of being like, you know, I don't want to do that. I mean, we have to go do this other thing that I want to do, which then I think made me want to talk to you about
2: things.
0: I mean, even more. I went to fucking poetry slams with you. Slams.
1: Well, that was when I was older. I'm thinking about when I was six years old. But yeah, when I went, I saw I went back to watch a poetry slam like a few weeks ago. And I was thinking about how you would go to so many of them with me when I was in high school. And I was just like, wow, that really is love.
0: I went to poetry slams. (laughs) I watched you do slams.
1: Yeah, you went into anything I was interested in, you also became interested in, which I think is a very rare and special thing.
0: It was easy because I wanted to be with you and your brother.
1: But I was going to say, like, I think the biggest thing for me is that even when... I doubted if I was intelligent or I could do stuff. You and mom never doubted if I was capable. Like You never let your anxiety about yourself make you, at least to me, anxious about what I was going to be able to do.
0: That's true. And
1: you emphasized, I think, hard work a lot. It wasn't like, even though I had like dyslexia, there wasn't a question of if I was going to do well or not in school.
0: Correct. So as a parent... I would have anxiety if you had a hard time at school. And then once you went to bed, mom and I would talk about that we felt bad or we were worried, would you be okay tomorrow? But yes, you can't, it's important as a parent not to put that stuff back on the kid so that when they look at you, you're not reflecting back anxiety or worry to them. You're understanding them and knowing that what they say to you is real and letting them know that, but you're not mirroring or like dumping your own anxiety back on your children, I think that's that's important. I I would, but I would also say just to because I don't want to. That's why anytime I start talking about this stuff, I want to be complete. It might sound from this like Amy and I were just like palsy walsy with the kids, but we weren't. There were clear lines. Um, we were clearly parents
1: with you more so than mom. But yes, I was clearly. Uh, <laughs> you have a lot of like piety. Is that the right word? Propriety. Propriety. You have a lot of propriety.
0: Yes. I, I was a, the parent, for sure. We were parents. But that's
1: what I'm saying. I could go to you and be like, unlike a friend, I could go to you and tell you, I'm so insecure, blah, blah, blah. What if I'm not smart enough? And you, with the authority of a parent, would be like, Yes, you're going to be okay. This is going to be fine. Here are examples of people who are okay and are whatever. But you have to work really hard.
0: We would raise standards. I'm saying as a parent, I would also present standards. standards. Yeah, that you had to hit. You had hit. very
1: high standards for both me and Sam. Ex- obviously,
0: understanding who your child is. You, but
1: that's what I'm saying. You knew I was capable. Yeah, and you held those standards, even if on some level you were anxious about it. You had very high standards, and you held them for me.
0: Uh, yes, and 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 then you delivered. I wouldn't hold standards that I thought you could. If I had thought, oh, yeah, you she never can't, said but I had but to you basketball. went off to college and ended up with a three nine, blah blah blah. So I always knew right. that was possible. But again,
1: you never like you never were like you're going to have to do gymnastics. Like you fit goals that.
0: Your level of coordination would have made that
1: a little difficult. I would
0: have been a mean dad.
1: Hey, Brian, I know you have likely watched the Jason Isbell documentary. Uh, yeah. One of the things that Sam Jones is clearly interested in as a filmmaker is navigating the creative life in a healthy way. So you live in a house full of writers and filmmakers. So what does the documentary about the Cobbleman family look like? Cheers, Steve.
0: (laughs) I mean, you're kind of hearing an audio version of it now, Steve. Oh, is that my friend Steve, the writer? It may be. I would say that, first of all, Jason and Amanda, wow, what a job. Sam Jones made an incredible thing. Mm -hmm. I love that documentary and you should definitely go watch it. Bill Simmons company did it. Bill was involved and I love the documentary. It's very open. Jason's the best songwriter that there is. And, um, Amanda's creative influence is enormous and they really get into that whole thing. She's a great songwriter in her own right. Truly a great songwriter. So fascinating, amazing.
1: Change that Nashville sound.
0: Yes. That's what Jason says in a lyric about Amanda. Yeah. And then she did with the High Women. Yeah. Incredible. Yeah. I mean, that's a band. She actually got Brandy Carlisle in a band with her.
1: Yeah. Before Brandy Carlisle was as big as she is now.
0: And also, just let's give it up to Brandy Carlisle. What a legend. Yeah, the always greatest. The greatest. Oh, my God. Um, I would say, like, we don't.
1: Wear as many sunglasses.
0: That's true. We don't. We don't. Look the pressure they're under is just different. They had a, yeah. Having the camera crew adds the pressure of making an album together. We work on our art separately, all of us mostly. Yeah. Everyone helps everybody, everyone pitches in, everyone looks at everybody's stuff, everyone gives notes to everybody else. Sometimes that, no, I will say, you know, sometimes that notes process can get snippy.
1: Well, I can say exactly what the, my, my experience of the notes process is. Please do. Which is nobody hands you anything unless it's like basically done. What do you mean? Anything that ever gets to you?
0: Oh, to me, you mean?
1: Yeah. Anything that ever gets to you, I like. If I write something and then I want notes, I first give it to mom, then I edit it with mom's notes, then I give it to Sam, then I give it back to mom. Then once they both say it's as good as possible, then I send it to you, and then you go, "Wow, it's amazing."
0: But my yes, but because
1: you are the meanest notes giver, you have no, uh, you don't sprinkle in any uh, flowery. There's no cushions.
0: Yes, if I give notes that, okay, going, this is a good button on this. Much like Amanda, I, ch- Amanda, in the documentary, everyone in this family is a professional creator, writer, co- whatever it is.
1: You were giving notes like this, though, since I was like 10.
0: Knew you were a professional. <laughs> and the thing is, my regard for you is shown by the fact that I'm taking the work seriously. Right. And I'm giving notes to make the thing better because I know you're capable of doing better mm-hmm. and I'm going to respond as a professional and I tell that to people when, when someone asks me for notes in the world who I say what kind of notes do you want and if you want a professional's take I'm going to give it to you and I'm not going to spend a lot of time look I do say great line That pa- that paragraph's amazing
1: only when you mean it
0: right that's what I'm saying I will give it up when the thing Yeah, is- when
1: you actually, but you you've never once been like, I really love what you're doing here. This is the stuff you you should change, and I really like this final sentence. You, if you think something's not good, you will read it and you, you'll go, "Did you even try?"
0: Yeah, well, I'll be like, <laughs> the opening paragraph kicked. I will. I'll say you know, like,
1: you'll go, "Oh come on, really?"
0: Well, because you can do better. And then what usually happens? <laughs> what what happens? What's the what's the result of and that then process? I go, ah!
1: And then it's better Like two days later
0: Two days later It's great You go publish it <laughs>
1: Yeah <laughs> Okay um, This is a fun one Hi Anna Hi Brian I'm a chef And I was always Chef I was always fascinated By the eating scenes In your show So much so That one time I said to myself Fuck this And then I stopped the binge watch Because we were locked down Because of COVID There is one specific scene at the end of an episode where Chuck and Ira are eating some meat, I guess. Please talk about those scenes because obviously they are very important for you and Dave. Take care. Nuno.
0: Oh yeah. That scene where they're eating meat. Um, they go to both, they go to Peter Luger and, but the episode starts at salt Bay and ends at Peter Luger. Well, we were saying a lot in that episode about the intrinsic quality and things. Um, I think food, David and I think that the way people share mealtime and that space and the kind of fellowship around that always means something. In New York, the restaurants also say something about access and power and mm-hmm. taste.
1: Mm-hmm.
0: And the show exists in those worlds and so each of those things comes from hours of conversation and planning and thinking and they all work, to, if they work they all work together so I'm glad when people like you Chef catch that and pick up on the significance of it I don't like want to say too much about what each scene means, I really like leaving that up to the viewer but there is zero doubt that it's really important and significant to us.
1: How do you pick the restaurants or like what the characters are eating?
0: What do you mean? How?
1: Like what, like when you're storyboarding, are you at one point like, okay, Chuck's going to be eating X in this scene.
0: Well, maybe is that some... just
1: kind of in like you just know intuitively or is no,
0: it... we talk, Dave and I talk about it and we'll talk about it with Beth too, who works with us on the show. And then, um, We'll talk to our locations department and what?
1: Do you ever like eat something and then think of the scene in which they'd be eating it after? Like, are you ever inspired by the food or is it always the other way?
0: Well, you'll go, we'll go to a restaurant. Yeah. Anytime I go to a restaurant, I'm like, could this be, does this make sense for the show? But also the meaning of the different restaurants in the city, as you know, your brother and I are very a part of the New York dining world, Mm -hmm. eating world. And so am I. My association. And I wouldn't say you've put a lot of time.
1: In my own right.
0: I wouldn't say you've put a lot of time in separate from us building restaurant things. Well, until now. Yes. Well, now Oh, that's hilarious. Yes. Sorry. Anna's a hostess. And I by the way, got the jobs without ever telling me she was doing it at two restaurants where I'm not a VIP or a regular that are very high brow. Well, yes. In the last three months, you've become
1: in my own way
0: in your own way in the New York dining world. It's yeah, true. You
1: and Sam are more in your own, in, in a in a very different, better way. Probably.
0: No, I'm really glad that you picked me up on that because I know I think of that as your job. Like well, the way I think about that always is, I'm so proud of you that you went and got a job and you do that job and you like. I remember you got the job and I afterwards I offered to connect you with two very very well known front of house people because you're working front of house. And you were like, zero NEPA. I go, what do you mean? You go, I go, they're not even in the restaurant. I go, these people own <laughs> restaurants that are in different whole places. And you're like, no, dad, I'm doing this on my <laughs> own. I to cut this
1: because it's so obnoxious. <laughs> but it's true.
0: Did you not say no NEPA to me?
1: I did say, I think I, it was in text.
0: Next question. Okay. Um, and we're not cutting it.
1: Boy. Really. Hey, Brian and Anna, big fan, first time, long time. I've just in the last couple of years started to write my own screenplays, thanks largely in part to starting morning pages and making time to write daily. My question is, do you have any visual tricks you employ when breaking a story or even further into the writing process? Anything that helps you better get your mind around the story? I'm a visual thinker, so when I'm conceiving of the story and how the structure of the story works, I like to draw it out on a long bit of butcher paper and make notes all around a central timeline. I scribble on this for as long as it takes and when I'm happy to use index cards to note the scenes, go from there. Thanks, Mitch.
0: Mitch, if you came over to our apartment, and let me be clear, you're not invited. <laughs>
1: <laughs> well, we don't know yet.
0: It's right now. There's no invitation there extended. Be,
1: this play <laughs> might be really good.
0: There's no, there's no at this moment, yeah. you're not I invited. Think
1: Mitch is gonna be here at some point.
0: Um, but definitely call first, Mitch. Don't just show. Yes. But if you were to walk around our apartment, you would see that the way Amy works is incredibly visual. She's got, when she's working, all on the walls in like many rooms will be all sorts of um, like loose-leaf paper, construction paper, drawings of things, pictures. Drawings of
1: characters. Yeah,
0: character drawings, drawings of buildings, pictures of places, and it's what helps her build her stories.
1: Yeah, uh, and then she'll also print things out, cut them, like... Print out like if she's working on a novel, like you know, two chapters, and then cut them and then rearrange them.
0: Visual, super visually. I don't work like that. I, I do Q card, I, I use index cards to to put acts up with David. David and I do that. David writes them.
1: You have the usually full season, though, lined out in your office.
0: Yes, right? we use yeah. for the seats. We will put on a whiteboard for the episodes. We do that. Like they go up on a whiteboard, but it's still words. It's not. And and the visual thing is just what follows what. So, yes, there's an order. And we're looking at the order of scenes. But when I was young and I started watching and becoming obsessed with movies, I it manifested in me by memorizing dialogue. Like, I think in terms of dialogue. My outlines are dialogue heavy. I think of story in terms of the things people say. Mm-hmm. And that's you can see that in our work. Different people approach this stuff differently. I Really like the way words sound. I really like meter. So, for me, I need music because sound mm-hmm. is so important. So, I have music going a lot of the time when I'm writing, mm-hmm. and that music has a rhythm, and then that affects maybe the meter of how, like, the pace of the scene, but also the meter of the dialogue. And then in my head, the dialogue, there's a meter that's what pushes the story forward? And I'm always hearing it. I'm thinking and I'll say it out loud. I'm, I'm, I'm big on talking the story out and, and hearing it. And this goes happens and that happens. And that's what helps me. But the visual stuff really helps people. And I think the main thing is like, however, it works for you is valid and i would just keep doing more of that until you find the thing i mean sometimes i can't write a scene until i have the right music and then sometimes i have to have no music and and i need to just hear that because i can't quite find the meter and the meter of the words is is just when the meter's right when i feel it you know however that works that's when i can that's when i can really go and fly
1: Okay, this is honestly such a perfect follow-up question. Why is Tom Petty the best?
0: I love that question. Do you remember who asked it?
1: No, I, I, some people don't want their names, so then I just was copy and pasting.
0: To okay, next time if you want your names, say it, and then we'll definitely say your names. There's this incredible article in Rolling Stone. By the way, I'll tell you a secret. When people are not cool like me, they say, they say the magazine's called Rolling Stone. And then really cool people say Rolling Stone. Uh, is that true? I've noticed it, yeah. There are people who just will pronounce it slightly differently to seem cool and on the inside. Um, hmm. But I'm not one of them. I would say there's this article in Rolling Stone by Warren Zanes, who is the brother of Dan Zanes. And But Warren and Dan had a band together before Dan started making music that was targeted toward younger people. And um, Warren's a great writer and he wrote this incredible Tom Petty biography. And I think he has a book coming out on Springsteen's Nebraska album. But he wrote, there was a a thing he didn't put in the memoir because it was really about, I mean, in the biography of Petty, because it was really about him, about Warren's experience. It was first, very first person. And it's about, he went to visit Tom and Tom made coffee. And it was like the best coffee he'd ever had. And he asked Tom, like, he's like, Oh dude, this coffee's so good. And Tom walked him over and showed him. And it was just a standard kind of like almost folgers. But the Tom had a machine that was just cleaned twice a day. You gotta read the article, go find it. But essentially Petty took regular coffee and found a way to make sure that it was brewed perfectly every single time. And if you brewed the coffee perfectly with care, attention, focus knowing that a cup of coffee is important to you, then you could make an exceptional cup of coffee every single time. You would never get a cup of coffee that was too bitter or too weak or too strong. And it is, as an artist, an unbelievably inspiring thing because look, we have the ingredients we have. We're made of what we're made of. And some people might have the stuff that's inside, better coffee grounds. But if you take what you have and treat it with respect and treat the other, the audience with respect and you every single time aim to make it perfect, the best it can be. It can only be as good as it can be, but each time it can be the very best it can be. You've really achieved something. And that's what Tom Petty did. His records are pristine. His songwriting is incredible. The amount of effort that he and Mike Campbell and Ben Montage, the whole band put into creating these records is why his music never feels dated. It never feels to circle all the way back, like it's trying to capture the zeitgeist of the moment. It's just in the fucking pocket every single time, and that's why he's as good as it gets. You know, I don't have him as the very, very best, but he is the best. He's as good as anybody who's ever picked up a guitar, and it's very sad to me that he died so prematurely and that he couldn't get past whatever the... The demons of his own life were and get healthy enough to keep going
1: yeah um this next question i definitely know the name of the person who asked because i was very excited when i saw they wrote in do you know who it is no jonas
0: oh my god hi jonas hi jonas jonas went to sam's school, Sam's entire life, where Anna went when she was in elementary He school.
1: might have been my first crush.
0: Very handsome, very tall.
1: Very tall. Even as a second grader, he was very tall and very handsome.
0: And the sweet and very, very smart.
1: So smart. And a great actor.
0: And yeah, he's great. He's Jonas,
1: but Jonas, what's Reynolds? up, kid? He said, when truth is disgusting, how do you write about it? Like, do you ever feel hesitation writing a scene that is truly fucking nasty? I wrote a pilot and treatment about two nursing home roommates that run away with their aid. Uh, nursing home's homework is full of love, but it is also full of feces. I want, to, want it to be portrayed with honesty, but I don't want to nauseate. How should a writer navigate the complex human emotion of disgust?
0: Ding, ding, ding. Collect the prize. First time feces has been said on the moment <laughs> with Brian compliment.
1: That's so Jonas, though, isn't it? <laughs> <laughs>
0: Kurosawa famously said, "The artist never looks away," and I know that because Bill Hader said that on this podcast. I didn't. It's not like I just walk around with Kurosawa in yeah, my I pocket. Was,
1: even, even I was impressed. I was like, "Wow." God.
0: Well, I remembered it. He said it eight years ago to me on the podcast. At least I remembered. Kurosawa's a great filmmaker. Um, yeah, Jonas, man, you got to write that. You got to write it because only you saw it. I would say, one of the most important functions of the, of the artist is to be witness and when you're witness you have to testify and you need to write it then you can look at it like you can look at it later you can find a way to artistically present it there's a way to show almost anything to communicate what about it is arresting or what about it is troubling or what about it is inspiring and you don't have to do it in the kind of lowest common denominator way as i can tell you don't want to and that's about craft like so right where does craft come into to to any of these things it's like we all have a look this is the artist one of the big struggles all artists wrestle with you get an idea so you get this feeling in your in in your head in your heart wherever however you identify it for yourself and you want to convey this emotional this you want to convey something and then inevitably when you start trying to manifest it it feels like it falls short. Or when you look at it back, it feels like it falls short. And all you can do is try to get it as close to that as possible. And then I think that you have to find a way to present the things that do disturb us in a way that we can process. What's That That doesn't mean making it- That's
1: like um, art disturbs the comfortable and comforts the disturbed. Yeah,
0: sure, yes. But also you like, like it doesn't have to be palatable and easy. It just has to be palatable enough that we don't shut the thing off or walk away from it. And you're living, you're doing this incredibly selfless thing. I know what you're doing. I know that you've gone out into the world to try to help people. And you are also have always been an artist. And so bear witness, man, just bear witness.
1: Yeah. Yeah. So I true. do still,
0: I do, I will say, Jonas. <laughs> I've
1: become unintelligent because it's Jonas. I'm just like, yeah. <laughs> He's
0: very handsome. But I will say, Jonas, I still do wish you got the sound to work.
1: On Fornication?
0: When I, no, I, I he asked me to act in a short film.
1: Uh, when
0: in 11th grade, I guess he was in.
1: Was it not with Sam?
0: No, Sam wasn't in it. It was, it was the great, singing artist Raffaella and me
1: no yeah, there's a there's a scene of you and Roth.
0: yeah I think I'm her therapist
1: that must be unarchived uh, yeah
0: yeah Jonas
1: Jonas final question sure final question Uh, Going back to the Jason Isbell of it all, is Cover Me Up non-coverable?
0: Well, if you're asking because of what Amanda and Jason kind of reveal about its creation, no, this is perfect, because this separates... So the artist writes something for a certain reason, but then when it gets out there to the audience, they make it what they make it. Mm -hmm. And I mean, I'm feeling this right now because... Luke Combs just covered, and I, I was thinking my I want, my family members must know this and have been wondering whether I was going to realize it or not, but Luke Combs is, is having basically a massive hit. It's going to probably be the biggest hit of the summer by covering a little song known as Fast Car. Mm. And obviously Luke Combs' experience in life isn't the same as the artist who wrote that song and had the Plenty original I'd say. hit with it. But it's clear if you see for two seconds Luke Combs singing it, how much it means to him and how how inside the song he is. And he makes it his own. And I've heard many versions of Cover Me Up. Now, one of the absolute greatest and most important memories of my life is taking Anna, you, to see Jason mm-hmm. with Amanda there on—that
1: was one of the great nights. Yeah,
0: violin and when he sang "Cover Me Up" to her that night on on the southeastern tour, it was one of the singular musical things I've ever seen in my life. Yeah, because it was still so fresh. But if somebody can sing that song in a way that they are capturing those feelings they won't sing it like jason and it's also been a hit for other people already and people it's a hugely covered song in nashville jason famously gave all the royalties from the morgan wallen version to charity um because you don't want to make money from that uh from that record but lots of people have had hits with that song or had every night somebody's singing cover me up somewhere and i think that's I think it's the reverse. I understand all the reasons you would ask that question about how personal it is and what it means. But I think when you do something that specific, it has the capacity to become... Universal. And, yes. And it's a standard. Like, I think not only is that song coverable, but I think that song has become a standard. I think that song is, like, as much of a standard as, some, as Blown in the Wind. Like, it's a song that is going to become something that generation after generation are are going to sing and i then that's what i feel about fast car uh i just did the rolling stone thing i called it fast car instead of fast car which is what everyone calls it but uh because that's what it is called but it's the same thing like fast car is a song that now um with luke having this giant hit Mm -hmm. is also one of those things and and nobody's had the experiences that tracy had but and then she obviously took whatever experiences were. No, I mean, she never said that's a true story exactly. She took whatever experiences and, you know, made art out of it. Right. And that process, I think, allows for something to be covered. Do you, do you disagree about Cover Me Up? What's your take?
1: No, I think that's correct. I agree with
0: it. Did you get to the part of the doc about it?
1: No. <laughs> so I have 20
0: minutes like left, it. right?
1: Yeah. I have 20 minutes left.
0: I don't actually want...
1: To spoil
0: it. To spoil it, but I also don't want to speak to it. The way that Jason and Amanda talk about it, they they do it very elegantly and beautifully, as they do uh, everything. All right, everybody. Anna, you're the best at this also. What a great thing. Thank you That's for coming. So fun. Well, you came to my space. Yes. I I go to your spaces. It's
1: very cats in the cradle. But now, like the reverse.
0: Yes, you're coming to our yeah. spaces. Yeah. All right, everybody. Um, you can write me, the moment, BK, at gmail.com. We'll keep compiling questions for the next time we do this.
1: And ha ha, Sam, you're not included.
0: Dude. <laughs> See everybody. Bye.